Hello listeners and welcome to the third season of Pebble in the Pond, a podcast that hopes to create a ripple of change for mental health. My name is Sam Stewart and I am the CEO of the Australian and New Zealand Mental Health Association. Each year our association hosts several leading mental health conferences that allow us the chance to meet and connect with the most fascinating and accomplished people in mental health. Listen in as we go one-on-one with the people changing the face of mental health in Australia and New Zealand. From lived experience speakers through to researchers, academics, leading community organisations and influential industry leaders. Our Pebble in the Pond podcast episodes may contain themes or topics of discussion that may be triggering for some listeners. If you feel you need assistance with your mental health at any time, please contact Lifeline on 13 11 14 or visit the Get Help page for additional resources at anzmh.asn.au. Hello listeners and thanks for joining us for the second episode of Season 3. When someone you love is affected by addiction, it's hard to know how to help. However, with the right knowledge, family members can play a vital role in the journey of recovery. This week's podcast guest, Chrissy Kelly, is a highly experienced community service professional specialising in alcohol and other drugs and mental health sectors. As the Queensland State Manager for Family Drug Support, Chrissy leads the Queensland team in providing support and education to families impacted by someone's alcohol and or drug use. For over 22 years, Family Drug Support, the FDS, have uh, developed a highly successful model for supporting families and friends impacted by someone's alcohol and or drug use. This model has been effective in supporting more than 60,000 families. That's right, 60,000. This week, Chrissy and I delve into the details of the Family Drug Support model and discuss situations that family face when supporting someone with addiction issues. This includes factors of shame and stigma and how to communicate effectively with fellow family members and t- what steps to take to actively show support. All right, welcome everybody to another podcast session. Uh, with me today, it gives me a great pleasure to have or to introduce you to Chrissy Kelly. Chrissy, thanks very much for joining me. My pleasure, Sam. Chrissy, let's, ta- let's, let's try and give the listeners a bit of context. Tell us a little bit about your background uh, into what you've been doing professionally. Okay, so um, prior to coming to Family Drug Support, I worked for uh, TAFE Queensland as a TAFE teacher in community services, um, teaching counselling, drug and alcohol, mental health. And I was, it was a privileged position in, in seeing students coming in that want to work in the community services field um, and, you know, watch them grow personally and professionally throughout their qualification and, and then yeah. go out into the big wide world and, and provide that support and care to people that um, are in need of it. How long were you in that role for? Uh, I was in a TAFE teacher role for just over 14 years. Wow. Yeah. And it was when I was doing that role that I came across family drug support and um, decided to be a volunteer for family drug support in addition to being a TAFE teacher. So I went along and did the volunteer training and became a volunteer for family drug support on their 24-7 telephone line and started running oh. a facilitated a support group as a volunteer for them. And, and what that gave to me was um, real-life examples that I could share with my students of, of families going through their battles, supporting someone with a drug or alcohol concern. 
But what it gave to family drug support is um, another volunteer to to reach the many thousands of families that um, are in need of assistance Australia wide. What made you, what made you choose family drug support? Was it just coincidence? Was it something that you're passionate about? Was there a? It was about the model, um, the model of work. Um, and, and when I found out about family drug support and the great work that they did, I thought that their, the organisational framework fitted really well with my professional framework. And um, that's really important when not only volunteering for an organisation, but when you work for an organisation that you, you have that, that fit. And um, I could see that it, it was working for families and they were getting great outcomes and I wanted to be a part of that. It's... Uh, I mean, it's it's great that so you, I mean you were doing your work in the community services, teaching this stuff at TAFE, and then you wanted to be able to better link it to real life examples, uh, which is what this gave you was that ex- opportunity to really get some, um, you know, get your hands in on it and actually get some examples to bring back and and show how it's relative. Absolutely, what, yeah. absolutely, because TAFE. Um, allow students to be work ready. And so if you've got uh, TAFE teachers that, you know, are very current in the sector, yeah. um, it's it benefits the students and, and makes them more work ready and, and what the challenges are out there in the world that they're going to be facing. So it was very helpful to me, but in turn it was very helpful to family drug support and, and the families that are accessing the service. And the 14 years that you were teaching students, did you see... Were you seeing more people coming through with a background in either mental ill health or addiction or anything like that? Were you starting to see people that were had their own lived experience coming through or was it just people that were really just passionate about trying to help people that were coming through? Yeah, you're right, Sam. A high proportion of people that are attracted to study in the field of drug and alcohol and or mental health um, usually have... Uh, lived experience themselves and and lived experience workers can make really great workers because they have that empathy and and understanding of what other people are going through in their journey Um, and they're just really formalizing their experience and then becoming workers themselves and yeah they're they're very vital in the field for sure because at family drug support probably 95 percent or more of the volunteers we have have lived experience of being a family member impacted of supporting someone with a drug or alcohol concern yeah right so what was people that were actually getting the course when they completed the course what were they then going out and what jobs were they getting into well i have past students working in residential rehabs across queensland uh, needle exchanges um, drug and alcohol counsellors um, and also, you know, in mental health support workers, yeah, it's a, a broad spectrum. Community services area is very large and the skills are transferable across the sectors from youth work to mental health to drug and alcohol to, to welfare, yeah. Yeah, wow. Are you still doing any of that today? Any of the teaching? No, I've okay. been with family drug support for the last three and a half years now. So then let's go over and talk about the family um, family drug support stuff and what they've been doing because they've been around for 20-odd years. Yes, uh, formed in 1997 by okay. our founder, Tony Trimmingham, and he's a current CEO as well. 23 years, so the founder's still there driving the, the organisation today. Absolutely, yeah. 
Tell us, tell us about the organisation and how you found it so far. So Family Drug Support is a not-for-profit charity. Um, we're reliant on funding to provide the sport. Government sp- funding? Yeah, state and federal okay. funding um, across Australia. We're Australia-wide service. I'm um, the Queensland State Manager based out of our Brisbane office. We also um, we're funded in southeast Queensland through Queensland Health and we're funded in central Queensland by Queensland House as well. In other states, um, we're funded by state and federal funding. So we're not a large organisation, but we do the best we can with the resources that we have. I'm guessing resources are tight. Absolutely, yeah. Um, drug and alcohol doesn't win votes, so it's, it's not easy to get um, funding from our MPs. Um, however, we do the best we can. But tell us about the problem of drug and alcohol addiction. How real is it and how how bad, not bad, maybe that's the wrong word, how um, how real is it but, but how prevalent is it in society? Well, at Family Drug Support we believe in the reality versus the fantasy and the reality is here in Australia, Australians like to take drugs and particularly alcohol um, and yeah, it, it is a real concern and the impact of people's drug and or alcohol use has a profound impact on family members and the people they care about around them. And um, it can shatter families and can tear families apart. And, yeah, uh, family drug support are there to try and keep those families on on track and and provide the support and information so that they can better support the person that's choosing that behaviour and try and keep them alive and safe while they are choosing that behaviour. Is uh, in Australia is alcohol the one of the most the, the most common? Um, absolutely, addiction? absolutely. Um, even though the media would like to think that methamphetamines is, um, alcohol is still the number one reason why people present at treatment services. Yeah. Why do you think the media want to make out like it's the meth? ice, yeah, the ice epidemic? Yeah. <laughs> um, it gets people watching the news. It gets people buying newspapers. Yeah. Um, and certainly the, the behaviours associated with someone that's choosing to use methamphetamines are problematic. Um, there can be violence. There can be a lot of anger. But there certainly can be that around alcohol as well. Just because it's legal doesn't mean it's good for you. Yeah, and do you think that's part of the problem with alcohol? I mean, do you feel like... Uh, I mean, if drugs were legalised, that there wouldn't be as uh, as much of a problem. I mean, with alcohol, you can see the fact that it's legalised doesn't mean that it's made it get the problem go away. Uh, it's still very much a problem, isn't it, in society? So, oh, absolutely, it it certainly is. But decriminalisation is certainly on the agenda. Um, you know, it, it's a health concern for people. Um, Charging people with crimes because they have a dependence to an illicit substance isn't the way forward. Yeah. And Portugal have been doing that very successfully with decriminalisation for many, many years. It's it's minimised their their overdose rates, uh, you know, the death related to drug use. And we want to try and keep people safe and alive while they're choosing that behaviour. Portugal, I didn't know this until I just learned it today, but they were one of the worst countries back in 2001 for overdose. Yeah. Uh, And then they changed it in 2001 where they legalised every drug. 
Is that correct? I'm not sure if they've legalised every drug, but okay. certain quantities of a drug, it doesn't mean that it's legal. It means the decriminalisation of personal use. Yeah, you don't get prosecuted. Yeah, okay. yeah, and you're referred through the health system rather than the criminal system. Yeah. Well, you could only think that that would be good. Oh, absolutely. Going through the health system f- to get the attention you need. Of course, yeah. yeah. It, it's it's a health concern rather than a criminal concern. People don't wake up in the morning and say, I'm going to get myself a, a drug dependence to methamphetamines or heroin. It's a slippery slope that gets them down on that journey. Yeah. You would, in your experience so far with, um, because you start out doing voluntary, but with family drug support, um, the the stuff that you're seeing with relate, relation to people that are addicted to drug uh, and alcohol, tell us... How have you seen it ruin people's lives? Well, it's not only ruined the person with a dependence life, but it's it's had a profound impact on, on the family around them as well. It tears relationships apart, um, you know, many divorces. And usually if it's a son or daughter in the family that has a dependence, the siblings are the first ones to opt out and um, try and have nothing to do with that person anymore because they see the burden that they're putting on the parents. And I'm talking about adult children, um, can be 30 plus. We have family members that access um, support from our service that are 80 years old supporting their 57-year-old daughter with alcohol dependence. So, Is that right? Yeah, it's, it's not just um, a young person's concern, it's um, and family members hang in for the long term. They're there for the long haul because, after all, this is their child. Um, even though they're an adult, it's still their child and they love and care for them. But, um, you know, sometimes very s- small percentage in, ends in death for a person that's dependent. Um, however, um, you know, loss of job, loss of family, loss of relationships, loss of finances incarceration, um, there's not a whole lot of positives to getting yourself a dependence to particularly illicit substance or alcohol. Yeah. I'd be really interested to to know a, f- a few things around this. And I know that you talk a lot about the support of the family uh, and, and the program that you guys have to help that process. But before we get into that, are you seeing the addiction to drugs and alcohol come through at younger rates uh, as well like are people doing getting hooked on this stuff younger age groups and what they were previously have they seen any patterns or any trends that are coming out through that i haven't seen that personally because um, a large proportion of the family members that access our service are um, probably in middle age so they're supporting adults Okay. Um, but in my experience in, in networking with other service providers, probably uh, the, the younger age group are uh, using things like um, uh, deodorant sniffing, um, paint sniffing, things like that. And to my knowledge, as young as 10, starting yeah. that behaviour. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, what about as it relates to geographically speaking? Uh, I mean, you cover the whole state of Queensland, but and and family uh, family drug support is national. Mm-hmm. But is there are you seeing high rates of addictions? Do you know out in regional rural areas as opposed to cities? Is there any 
any sort of statistics or anything that you can give us a bit of insight into there? Statistics are not off the top of my head. However, I know that whatever region I go to, whether it's rural, remote or in a city, there's always a huge need. And what our um, mining boom um, previously has brought with was people with a pocket full of money and not a lot to do in those rural remote towns. Um, so it's certainly been a problem everywhere and, and drug use doesn't discriminate. No. No, it's a good point. Uh, but let's go, let's go now to the family support side of things. I mean, you would have seen too often the way that uh, addiction to drug and alcohol can tear families apart as you've already mentioned, whether it's parents, other siblings, the kids. Uh, tell us a little bit about the role that the family has to play and then we can talk about the programs that you guys are up to, are doing. So there is evidence that suggests with family support that um, people with a drug dependence that want to change that behaviour through treatment have better treatment outcomes. The family is the informal support. Nobody knows the drug user better than the family member. And if we can harness that, it's a really, really effective tool in moving forward when they want to make that change in their life. Before they make that change, the families are the ones that keep that person safe. They have the opportunity to keep them off the, the street and, you know, provide that, that shelter and that support and, you know, basics of food um, while they're choosing that behaviour as well. When you say before they make the change, are you talking about the person that's got the addiction before they want to get help? Or yeah, exactly. Yeah. And Chris, is it something that – tell me the success that the family has to try and intervene and get them help and how effective that is before the person themselves are ready for that. I mean, is there anything you can shed some light on with that? Is it is it something that you can't really – if, until they hit rock bottom that you can't really help them with? Is it, tell us about, about the experience from the person that's actually got the addiction and when the family needs to really get involved. Well, interventions make, like Dr Phil provides, <laughs> makes good daytime watching but they're not uh, effective at all. People have to want to make a change in their life um, before they will. Um, so before people are ready to make a change in their life, what the family can provide is a harm minimisation approach in keeping them safe while they're choosing that behaviour. And um, that's the kind of information that we provide to families. It doesn't mean that they condone illicit substance use. It means that the reality is they're going to use it anyway and how can we keep them safe while they're choosing that behaviour. Is that hard to discuss when to help families see that point of view when they're because I don't know what it's like but if you if you have your kid uh, who may be a, a mature adult that's choosing to do this use of drugs let's say and and they just want to try and get them to rehab or you know get them to go from what I hear it's not as effective and you have to wait for them to be ready yeah. to, to be supportive but you're saying for them just to be Sitting there, just making sure harm minimization, making sure they're safe, yeah. letting them do it, is is the best role. Is it a challenge to help families see that? Oh, absolutely. But usually, um, they've burnt themselves out trying to do that before they they reach out for help from a service like Family Drug Support. 
So, um, yeah, they want the answers, they want it fixed, but, um, you know, we can provide support and information to families in, in how to best support the drug user in their family while they're waiting for them to make that change. Because we believe that, you know, most people at some point in time find the motivation to make that change around their drug use behaviour. Yeah. I'd just be really interested to know because I, if the person is is using drugs and you got to wait for them to be ready for it, so you sit back, make sure they're safe. You mentioned that they they get burnt out first. This is for the family I'm talking about. Are they burnt out from trying to convince them to stop at that before they come to you, or are they burnt out from sitting there trying to just keep them safe? They burn out from trying to make them stop. Yeah. Yeah. And they'll try anything, um, remortgage the home, spend $26,000 on a private rehab where they may last a day or two, um, research new t- new U-butte treatment that's happening overseas. They spend a lot of time and energy trying to control and, and make the behaviour stop. But, um, yeah. Because their intention is good. Absolutely. Their intention, they're only coming from love, they want to support, they they obviously hate seeing these people that they love in that state. Absolutely, yeah. And, and, and that's because they come from a, a, a position of, of love and caring and they know that once you remove the drug use from the situation that some form of normality will come back to their lives and they'll be back on track. Um, however, when a person has a dependence to a substance, that's their main focus and they can become quite selfish around that. Yeah, and so there's also probably other things that are going on around just their drug use though as well. I mean, are you seeing increase in people that would do crime that wouldn't otherwise do crime? Are you seeing the violence? Are you seeing other things that are also impacting these this person? Absolutely. Um, you know, they've got to fund their substance use somehow and so they will do whatever means to in order to be able to get that and if that involves crime... In a lot of cases, they will do that. They will steal from family. They will, will steal from neighbours. Um, and it also has a profound impact on their mental health at, sta- at times. And so we do see a lot of coexisting concerns with mental health and also substance use. And that's, you know, hard for the family to juggle that balance as well when, when they may not have an, a lot of knowledge around mental health concerns, of, you know, depression, anxiety, um, yeah, so it is really hard for them. Family Drug Support have developed a highly successful model for supporting families and friends impacted by someone's alcohol addiction uh, or, or drug use. When when do you guys, ideally, when do, when do you get approached and come into the equation? At what point? Usually family members are in the chaos stage where they've tried and tested Everything. Everything burnt themselves out and they go, oh, I don't know how to fix this. And so then they may um, Google or, or research support and that's usually when they come in contact with us uh, and then we can provide some information, provide support by a 24-7 telephone line. They can call us anytime. They can come to information sessions. They can come to our Stepping Stones program. Yes. Uh, there's a lot of options for family members. So you've got the telephone line, uh, the 30-plus the support groups that you have as well. Yes. 
the stepping stones and stepping forward sessions as well. Yes. We spoke just before on the typical, typically when people approach you, yeah. which is at crisis mode. Yes. Ideally, when would you, when would, when would people come and approach family drug support? Ideally, when they first uncover that someone in their family has a, a drug or alcohol dependence. Okay. Yeah. So then they can make an, uh, get, gather information, have some support behind them, and then they can make an inf- informed decision on a way forward for that particular family. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm reading the fact that you, uh, or this model that Family Drug Support has, has had and implement, been implementing, has been effective in supporting 60,000 plus families that access your program annually. Yes, that's correct. Annually. Yeah. I was just sort of – I had to read that twice. I'm like, that's an incredible number. Yeah. Yeah, that's just a, the tip of the iceberg of the families that are out there that really need support and information as well. Ideally, we'd want more people coming forward at an earlier stage, right, so that you could actually – so that number should really be higher. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, the people are out there, but the shame and stigma prevents them from, from making the call or making the contact. And is that the shame and stigma from the family we're talking about? Shame and stigma from their loved ones' drug or alcohol use. Yeah. Uh, Tony Trimmingham actually wrote a book and he called it Not My Family, Never My Child. And that train of thought is out there in community because it can't possibly happen to us because it wouldn't happen to our family. But it's So they're in denial? Yeah, yeah, actually, yes. A lot of people are in denial that it wouldn't happen to their family. But as I said before, drug and alcohol dependence doesn't discriminate. Yeah. Does the program discuss and help give you tips as a family support person on how to engage and approach somebody that's, that's addicted to drugs or alcohol? Absolutely. Um, Our Stepping Forward information sessions um, help family members understand the stages of change that the drug user goes through, the Protastity Clemente model, and also the stages of change that families go through. We also um, have a session on effective communication. So how do you talk to the person that has a drug dependence to minimise the conflict in those conversations? I wouldn't imagine that would be a pretty conversation to have. So, I mean... (laughs) Being able to understand it, firstly, from a structural point of view on how you should approach it, but then also what you should actually say. I mean, I think it would be a big difference and it would help, wouldn't it? Absolutely, because when someone in the family is doing something that the other people in the family don't agree with, there's often conflict. And so it's about trying to reduce that conflict and get the relationship back on track so that when they're ready to make that change... They, the family would be the first person that they go to for assistance. Yeah, because you'd be in your head, you'd be like, oh, do I dance around it? Do we just sort of pretend it's not there and just That's distract right. them and see if we can get a night without alcohol or something? And then, yeah. uh, or the, uh, the other approach where people probably just come in direct and trying to have the conversation up front and I assume that wouldn't go too well. That's right. So the first one you're talking about was the eggshells or the big white elephant in the room, you know, a lot of that. And <laughs> and the other one is the confrontation one. And what we found out that that both 
both aren't very, very effective at all. So yeah. we talk to families about being open and honest about communication and using I statements rather than, than blame. And, and you know, there's other things to talk about rather than the person's drug use as well. Why is that yeah. always the topic of conversation? Yeah, is there an underlying need that they're actually trying to get met by it? Is that what you mean? Well, the topic's always around their drug use because they want them to stop. Okay. Yeah. Okay, rather than looking at the habit behind or the, the cause of the habit. Well, rather than rebuilding the relationship so that the trust comes back so that they do have open and honest conversations gotcha. around it and they can have open and honest conversations about the person's drug use. Yeah, but I, I imagine that people in that state would be in denial themselves, wouldn't they, that they've got a problem in the first place? Well, deep down they probably know, but they don't like disclosing it because they yeah. try and, you know, it's it's like when you're growing up, you don't want to disappoint your parents. And a lot of instances this is an adult child with their parents and so they want to tell them what they want to hear. So there's not a whole lot of open and honest conversations going, you know, they're still trying to deny the extent of their use and what they're actually using. And sometimes the parents don't want to hear the extent of their use because it's quite scary as well. But you're saying there's a proven way that you can go about this that actually tries to do it in the way that's or does it, obviously clearly with the success you had with having with this program, that it, uh, there is a certain formula that you can follow. Exactly, and we can provide that information to families and, you know, if they choose to... Um, implement it, um, you know, the feedback from families is that they get better outcomes. It strengthens the relationship and then they can move on from there and then, you know, at some point in time when their loved one wants to make that change and, and, and either whether they get treatment or however they go about making that change in their drug use behaviour, the family can walk with them on that journey. Is there an approach, uh, I mean... How far into it do the people need to be? Like if they're drinking, if you notice that someone is drinking a lot more and they're every night all of a sudden it's becoming, um, you know, a couple of bottles a night and all of a sudden you start witnessing this, is that when you should really reach out and try and get the help that you need to know which a way to go about it to address it with the person rather than leading it to a point where it gets a bit too far down the the other way when it keeps going and going? Well, I guess um, with, it, you know, trying to determine if someone has a dependence to a substance is, you know, can they stop? If they're having trouble stopping, well, obviously they have a dependence. And whether it's impacting on the quality of the life and also the relationships around them. Because, um, you know, how do you determine really what's going to impact the family. But, you know, of course, early intervention and conversations and having open conversations about that is really, really important. But what the person tends to do is hide the amount of the extent of, of their use, whether it's alcohol or drug use. They try and hide that because deep down they know it's probably not appropriate levels. So there's, there's a way that you can approach this from a... Um, you don't have to wait until it's too far gone. You're saying that actually if you, with the program that you guys have, that there's ways to start having these conversations before it gets to that point. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Okay. And and we're here to support and, and support families at whatever stage that they're at. Okay. Yeah. 
The definition of dependency, is that something that people uh, struggle with that come to you guys and say, well, I don't know if they're dependent on it. Is that ever a question or it's really black and white? No, they're dependent. They're, this person that you're talking about is 100%. Um, they're addicted. Is it? Usually by the time they reach our service, they're pretty convinced that they do have a dependence to their choice of yep. substance, yes. And what type of families are we talking about here? Is it, uh, you mentioned before, middle-aged uh, middle adults. But Yeah, it it's interesting. Uh, the statistics that we gather from our 24-7 telephone support, um, we gather statistics around who the caller is, um, their age of the person they're calling about, their gender, whether they're working or not, um, choice of drug if they know it, the extent of, you know, how long they are aware that they've been using that drug. So we collate all, all of that information and, and what we've learnt by that, that um, a high proportion of the people they're calling about, so that's the person with an alcohol or drug dependence, uh, are older people themselves. So a very small percentage are teenagers, but um, generally um, 30 years and plus that they're calling about and the number one caller to our telephone line is a mum. Wow, yeah, that's interesting. Do you think it's do you don't do you think that the people below that age bracket, so when they're calling about, let's say it's a teenager or something, do you think it's because they're calling somebody else, or do you think the fact that they're not yet in a position where they feel like they need help at that point? Maybe because yeah, they're still trying to fix it themselves. Okay. Um, but it's not uncommon for us to have a caller that's been supporting someone in their family that's had a dependence for ten years, fifteen years, wow. and they're just at the end of end of their wits end, and that's they don't know what else to do. That's how long it can go for. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Or you know, not everybody um, sets out to to have a drug or alcohol dependence for that long, but um, it's a trend that we see at Family Drug Support. Talk to me about the stages of change in the families model. Stages of change for families, which is developed by Tony Trimmingham. Yeah. Um, so Tony says there's five stages that families go through and the first stage is denial. So someone in their family is using drugs but the family's not fully aware of it. They may see some changes in behaviour but they can't quite put their finger on it, what's actually happening. Um, it might be because they have no knowledge or symptoms of drug use or it can't possibly happen in our family. Um, but during that time, you know, something may happen and it takes them out of denial and puts them into the next stage. It may be a knock on the door by the police. It may be that they find that evidence of, you know, maybe drug using utensils or, you know, they can't deny it anymore the next stage, Tony says, is the chaos stage. Um, oh, sorry, the emotional stage um, because the shock of, of really finding out that someone in their family has a drug or alcohol dependence is, you know, quite overwhelming, particularly if it's never happened before. Um, they're angry. The anger masks a number of other feelings, which is fear because they don't know what's going to happen to them. If they listen to the media, they think that they might die from it. Um, and also the shame and stigma associated with drug and alcohol use. 
and also the grief, the loss, because they had high expectations for that family member and then all of a sudden those dreams are shattered because they know that drug or alcohol dependence is a slippery, slippery downhill slope that's um, you know not on the road to success. Uh, after the emotional stage, they go into the controlling stage where they say, oh, that's okay, we can fix this. So uh, there's two types of control, a hardline approach where that's the issuing of ultimatums, that tough love approach, stop using drugs or I'm going to kick you out. It's my way or the highway approach. Or the, the soft line approach where they might be juggling family members to try and keep the peace with the drug user in the family an example may be that the drug user hocks dad's golf clubs and mum gets them out of hock and puts them back before dad knows about it. Um, so a bit of covering up. There might be a taxi service for the drug user. But they're really just trying to fix it and make it stop. And, you know, they, they might flip between hardline approach and softline approach. They're just trying to find something that actually works. Um, but after a period of time, um, they get burnt out from that and realise that they can't make it stop. And stage the next stage is the chaos stage where they don't know what to do, they're burnt out, how are we going to fix this? And then they start blaming other members of the family. It's your fault you were too soft on him, it's your fault you were too hard on him. And so they start bickering amongst themselves and the whole family unit starts to fall apart. But with support and education, families can move to the next stage, which is the coping stage, where, you know, if they access a service like family drug support. They can get information so they can make informed decisions, um, get the support that they need, get some education around how to work forward with this and then get that self-care back into their lives so that their tank's full again and they can face every day. Um, because, you know, when you're, whether you're working in the community services or supporting somebody, it takes its toll and, and you really have to look after yourself it's not selfish to put yourself first in these situations so you can be a better support to your loved one. Are these, are these stages very closely mirrored by the person going through it as well? By the drug user? Yeah. Yeah, so they're going through their own stages, the Protesta di Clemente model of um, you know, pre-contemplation, contemplation, action, maintenance... And so, yeah, the family's going through their own stages. And the family, you know, even though it's the stages of change for families, they can go backwards and forwards. It's not always just, you know, following each stage and staying in it. People can get to the coping stage and then, you know, something quite traumatic happens and they can go back into the controlling stage and try and, you know, fix it again. Um, but we find that the families that get to the coping stage come to the realisation that their family member's drug use makes no sense because prior to that they're trying to make sense of it. And, it, you know, it doesn't make any sense because it is a, a downward spiral. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's interesting to see those stages from the support point of view, isn't it? Because wouldn't normally think to... I mean, you always seem to focus on the person going through it, the user. Yeah. Um or the addict, but to think about the stages of support is really interesting. That's right. It has a profound effect on, on family members and how they react to it along this journey, for sure. And, you know, in some of our support groups, you can see the different stages that families are going back and forward from, 
and um, you know the discussions and the collective wisdom of the group support those people in moving forward as well. So your program, the program is really about all about these the support network going through the program, not the person themselves. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. supporting the family so they can be a better support to yeah. the person with a drug or alcohol dependence. I mean, it's it's such an important role. And, and you can see how putting some sort of structure and strategy and methodology around it would really make sense to give the person who's experiencing the addiction the best chance of trying to come out of it, but also to try and keep, like you said, the, the, the relationships intact. Yeah, yeah. It's, not, it's a delicate balance. It's, it's like a dance because, you know, they're doing something they don't agree with. They can see the detriment to them. But trying to maintain that relationship and, and families, you know, large proportion of families are in for the long haul um, and it's because they love and care. What's your, what's, what's the biggest challenge with all this? Is it, I don't want to say it, but is, what's the biggest challenge you're facing with this? The, re, the reluctance, the shame and stigma in drug and alcohol that prevents families from putting up the hand that need help. That's the, that's the biggest stigma. That's the biggest barrier. Yeah. Shame that brings with having to call the number yes. to admit that they need some help. Ex- yeah, absolutely, for sure. Um, drug and alcohol, um, you know, has community views on, on people with a drug or alcohol dependence um, impacts the family greatly. And so that shame and stigma prevents them from being able to be confident and asking for assistance when they really need it. Mm. It's, I, it's so important, this work. I mean, it's, uh, it's great to see that you guys are all around Australia. Is there anything in New Zealand? Is, are you guys just Australian-based at the moment? We have um, organisations in New Zealand that run our Stepping Stones program. Okay. Um, it's it's hard to expand when you don't have the resources to support. Um, currently, we have workers in Queensland, New South Wales, Victoria and South Australia. We're hoping in the future with further funding to, to have a worker on the ground in Western Australia and also the Northern Territory and also Tasmania. But... Um, yeah, because there's families yeah. in need there as well. So at the moment they can access our online resources, they can use our telephone support, they can use our um, online counselling, which is the SAGE platform. Um, however, uh, nothing beats uh, face-to-face support and being able to come to a support group and be with, you know, that peer support model really, really works. So being around other family members that are experiencing a similar situation um, you can't bottle that. No. And, and, you know, we're seeing that already even with the peer workforce lived experience coming through, the power of having them and involving them in conversations in everything we do. Uh, but, I mean, from a support network, it just makes sense as well to get together, to share learnings, to be able to resonate with each other and understand what each other are going through to show that you're not in this alone. Absolutely. And, you know, and that power of reducing that isolation and realising that other people are going through journeys similar to their own, you know, that's really powerful. And that collective wisdom in a group of people with lived experience is is something that, um, you know, it, it just really helps family members in moving forward. They hear 
things that other family members have done that haven't worked, they hear things that have worked and then they can make a decision moving forward what's best for their family. So family drug support offer programs or information or resources that can assist family and support networks uh, in just education awareness in intervention, like not intervene to intervene, but to supporting people while they're going through what they're going through, but also in the recovery period as well to help give them that support that they need throughout that process as well. Oh, absolutely, yeah. yeah. Every so, phase. Yeah, absolutely, and even ongoing. Um, we have family members that still come to our support groups, even though their loved one. Um, may have abstained from drug use for months or even years, but um, you know they still like the support of the group and and their expertise and their experience is very helpful to others as well. So that's why a, a lot of our volunteers actually sign up to volunteer for us because they got so much out of the support and information that family drug support gave them that they want to give back to others who are battling on their own journey. Is is it f- is it free for families to access family drug support? Absolutely. Yeah. Wow. And so you're relying 100 percent on state and federal funding. Yes. Wow. I, I couldn't imagine that uh, that'd be easy. Is it year to year thing? Is it every couple of years that you find out about funding with that? Yeah, yeah. Nothing's permanent in the funding world. Depends what government's in power, and yeah. But you know what is important. To community is families. So to me, I don't see why the government wouldn't put families first and, you know, the challenges that they go through and, and to resource an organisation such as Family Drug Support well so that we can offer an even improved service to family members. Chris, if you could wave your magic wand, how would you envisage this to go? If you could, if resources wasn't a problem... What would you say, oh, you know what we need is this. This would really help save it or this was what, This is the resources we really need. What solution? Well, it comes down to the dollar. Yeah. Because without being well resourced, we can't reach the families in particular areas that, that don't have that support, you know, regional remote areas. The, the two, um, you know, Northern Territory, Western Australia, where we don't have workers on the ground, Tasmania. So it all really comes down to being well-resourced and, and that comes down to the conscience of of government and the conscience of, of MPs to push this forward and, and to realise, you know, families vote too. And so, you know, they should be looking after their voters because they're struggling. Yeah. They're struggling in, in how to cope with these roller coasters when someone in their family has a drug or alcohol dependence. But, you know, it's proven with support and information they can survive and also get a better outcome for their loved ones when they when they choose to change that behaviour around their drug use. Well, that's the outcome we all want, isn't it? Absolutely. Moving forward, as we look into the future, what... Um, anything else what's on the horizon for yourself or family drug support is there any other anything else happening that you want to share with the listeners Um, we'll continue to do the best we can with the resources that we have um, you know particularly here in Queensland to expand our services where we can 
And, um, you know, we are reliant on other organisations to refer families to us and, and provide us with venues at different times to run our support groups, um, to run our information sessions and, and the generosity of community organisations is, is something that, you know, we rely on and we really, really appreciate because we're not funded for, for different venues across the state as well. But um, all we can hope for is to expand our services so that the families that really need us can access our service. And it makes perfect sense. Uh, community effort for community benefit seems to be something that is what, what's driving and what needs to keep going for a, a, such a, an organisation that's doing incredible work uh, on the smell of an oily rag, I, I, <laughs> I, I guess. Yeah. Um, but... Listen, is there any other comments you want to add in closing? Is there anything else that you wanted to talk about? Um, how people can get in touch with you guys? Is there anything else you want to mention? Well, they certainly... Um, we've got an abundance of resources on our website as well. So apart from our 24-7 phone line, people can look up the Family Drug Support website. There's a number of videos on there that you can watch in the comfort of your own home to um, get some information so that you can make an informed decision um, but, you know, we can all play our part in, in assisting families to get that support. We can all play our part in reducing shame and stigma in, our, in the drug and alcohol sector. It's something that we need to talk about and we shouldn't be shameful of it. Yeah. Uh, I couldn't have said it better. Uh, Chrissy, it's been great talking to you and shedding the light on such an important role and, and, and the role of the support that family and other support networks can play in helping people uh, that have a dependence on drugs and alcohol overcome that addiction, uh, and, but also to try and keep the relationships and the trust and everything intact yeah. through the process. I couldn't imagine what that would be like. But I'm glad you guys are out there. I know there's 60,000 other families that are, are super glad that you guys are out there. Um, thanks very much for joining me, and I appreciate the, the conversation. Yeah, Thanks, Sam. And... Um well, what we do know at Family Drug Support, if you support the family, you will improve the outcome. So thanks for listening. Makes sense. Thanks, Chrissy. Is there someone working in mental health who you'd like to be featured on the podcast? Are there more questions you want the answers to? Let us know what you want to hear. Get in touch with us by emailing any podcast suggestions to membership at anzmh.asn.au and be sure to stay up to date on our socials at ANZMHA on Facebook, Twitter and LinkedIn. Thank you very much for listening and we look forward to sharing our next conversation.